Good afternoon. I'm Jim Dorn, uh, Vice President for Monetary Affairs at the Cato Institute. Uh, welcome to today's forum. We're glad to have uh, Congressman Brady here with us and John Allison and Norbert uh, Michelle from Heritage. Uh, I'll give a few uh, introductory remarks, uh, take a few minutes, and then we'll go right to uh, Representative Brady and then to John Allison and to uh, Norbert Michelle. Uh, they'll each speak for about uh, 10, 10, 12 minutes, something like that, and then we'll have time for uh, Q&A at the end. Uh, this briefing comes at a very important time in our monetary history, uh, being that it's the Federal Reserve's 100th anniversary. Uh, of course, the legislation was signed at the end of last year, 100 years ago, and this year was the year that the Fed opened its, its doors to, to business. It's interesting. Uh, that the Federal Reserve Act, which was passed on December 23rd uh, in 1913, wanted to provide an elastic currency uh, and also to prevent bank panics. Uh, and the panic of 1907 was critical in the formation of the Fed. And that's when they also established, uh, shortly afterwards, the National Monetary Commission. Uh, then fast forward. Uh, 100 years or so, and we had the panic of 2008, and now Congressman Brady is suggesting we have a centennial monetary commission. And I think that's a very good idea. It's a bipartisan uh, bill, and it's about time we looked at the Fed in detail uh, over its 100-year uh, performance, and especially since the financial crisis. The Fed has more power now than it ever had before. Uh, so it's, a, it's an appropriate time to uh, start thinking about asking the serious questions and looking at alternatives to the current system. The current system is f featured by pure discretion and fiat money, not backed by anything. I think a lot of Americans don't realize that. Uh, Americans still seem to think that it's backed by something. Uh, in doing my research, I've been working on monetary issues for a long time. I came across an interesting quote uh, from the 1876 Monetary Commission, uh, which usually isn't talked about too much. But I just want to give you this quote. It's just a short quote, but it's, this was back in 1876, of course, before the Fed. Uh, and the commission said, the highest moral, intellectual, and material development of nations is promoted by the use of money unchanging in its value idea of sound money. Uh, now, if you take that criterion, of course, the Fed is responsible for price stability. That's one of its, its mandates, along with full employment. Uh, but if you look at the record of the Fed uh, since its formation in 1913, and you look at price stability compared to 100 years before that, where you had uh, a bimetallic or a gold standard toward the end of the uh, 1800s, uh, you'll find a remarkable uh, record when you look at the two. And I, I, I put these charts outside on the table. We're not going to show them today, but when you look at this, uh, I did a chart from 1774 to 2011. And it's sort of a flat line for the price level. This is the measure of the price level. Okay? And of course, after the Fed was created, the price level started to go up. But it really started to go up after 1971 when Nixon closed the gold window. Uh, so 
there's an inverse relationship between the value of money and the price level. When the price level goes up, the value of money goes down. So the U.S. dollar is worth a lot less now than it was back in 1913. So the Fed has really failed on that, on that measure, okay? And it's, it's obvious from that chart. You don't need a lot of econometrics. Well, the Fed's charter started in 1913, but it was only a 20-year charter, which a lot of people don't uh, remember. Uh, so they didn't have a blanket, you know, infinite uh, horizon. They were going to be judged. Uh, in 1927, their charter became permanent. Uh, so again, I'd like to reemphasize the importance of this Centennial Monetary Commission. Uh, well, let's uh, get started here then. Uh, and our first speaker is going to be uh, Representative Kevin Brady, who's familiar with, to all of you. He represents the 8th dist District in Texas. The, he's the Deputy Whip and Chairman of the Joint Economic Committee, Senior Member of the House Ways and Means Committee, Chairman of the Health Subcommittee, and he's introduced legislation, as I said, to create this bipartisan Centennial uh, Monetary Commission. Until 2013, uh, Representative Brady was the leader of the Trade Subcommittee, and prior to coming to Washington, he still, still lives in Texas, by the way. Uh, he worked as an executive for the Chamber of Commerce and served six years in the Texas House of Representatives. So it's a pleasure to welcome Representative Brady. Jim, thank you. Jim, thank you for, one, uh, uh, bringing us together and uh, agreeing to moderate this. John Allison, thanks very much for Cato's leadership in this area. And uh, it is certainly taking a a higher step forward in all of this, and I can't think of a more appropriate time to do it. So, John, thank you uh, for that as well. And Norbert, thank you for being here on Heritage's behalf, and, and both in fiscal and monetary policy, these are key issues, so thank you. Um, I can't think of a, a better time to be having this discussion than right now. I took over the, ways, or the uh, Joint Economic Committee a number of years ago for House and Senate Republicans, and uh, my goal was to, to, to revitalize it back into a free market think tank on the economy, on the budget, uh, on how we move forward in economic freedom. Thanks to great staff and good uh, members serving on it, we've had some success in doing that. When I took it over, you know, I, I tasked my economic team with this challenge. If the experts believe the 1800s was the British century, the 1900s was America's century, those same experts predict this century is China's. So. What do we need to do today to make sure that America remains the strongest economy in the world through the 21st century? How do we have a second great American century economically? Well, there's no question fiscal policy plays a key role in it. You've got to get your taxes right. You've got to get your financial house in order. You've got to have the right regulatory schemes. No question about it. But what your central bank does, the monetary policy, that's equally important. And that's why at this point in our history, it's critical that we get that right and we reestablish Congress's constitutional role in monetary policy. One is because this economy is so disappointing. This is the weakest economic recovery in half a century. Uh, we're missing, just compared to an average recovery, just compared to a C-grade uh, recovery, we're missing over five million jobs, more than a trillion dollars from this economy. Millions of people are, have given up looking for work. Millions more can't find full-time work. And in fact, proportionally fewer adults are working today 
than when the recession ended. We've actually gone backward in that area. So the economy matters in a critical way. The Fed has played a role in that weak recovery. One, by keeping low in, uh, interest rates too low for too long, it contributed to this financial crisis. Secondly, to its credit, it helped calm the water during that crisis. But since then, it's taken on extraordinary actions that, in my view, has boosted Wall Street beautifully, left middle-class America and Main Street behind, uh, punished seniors and savers, uh, created more uncertainty in the marketplace, and have really planted the seeds for future inflation. So at this point, uh, as Jim said, at the 100th anniversary of the Fed, we believe, I believe, it's the perfect time to take a bigger picture look at the Fed and its role going forward. What we envision, and now we have 50 co-sponsors, is a brutally bipartisan commission um, uh, established along the lines of the 9-11 Commission um, that would take a look backwards over the first 100 years of the Fed, uh, looking at the Fed's effectiveness in economic output and in job creation, in financial stability, and all those factors of the first 100 years. But more importantly, having an open, thoughtful, constructive discussion on what role they believe the Fed should play in for the next 100 years and to make recommendations to Congress in that area, recommendations that would look at what should the mandate, a clear mandate from Congress to the Fed, what should it be? What are the rules the Fed should use? You know, how, um, uh, how do we uh, keep the Fed from picking winners and losers in the credit uh, 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 marketplace going forward. Uh, what is the role of assets, of the gold standard, of nominal GDP targeting, of all those areas uh, that there is good, thoughtful discussions, ideas today? How do we how do we provide a national forum that brings that uh, to the forefront and reminds Congress that indeed we have a role, constitutional role, in identifying those mandates and holding the Fed accountable in achieving them. Um, I think there's room for ideas like mine, as others. Uh, we've introduced the Sound uh, Dollar Act that really refocuses the Fed back on the mandate of price stability, on protecting the purchasing power of the dollar. Uh, there is no, I think, stronger foundation for growth than that. And if you ask, does it matter, uh, I noticed that during QE1 and QE2, as the Fed continued to stimulate uh, Wall Street, what happened is it drove the value of the dollar down. And that in those just so simple two steps, they drove the dollar down to the point that you and I were paying 50 cents a gallon more for every uh, gallon of gasoline we bought than we would have without QE1 and QE2. So the role of the Fed had, a, had, in just one instant, had a major impact on our families. Imagine over time, as the value of the dollar decreases, as the value of our hard work decreases through that currency, the impact on our standard of living, just as Americans. Um, in that Sound Dollar Act, besides focusing the Fed back on, the, um, uh, on price stability, uh, we move them out of picking winners and losers in the credit market uh, uh, going forward, uh, uh, seek to have them unwind the positions they have today, we seek to broaden the voices on the Federal Open Market Committee that makes these decisions by ensuring that, that uh, all of our regional presidents are voting on that. 
that breaks the Washington to New York connection in a way and makes sure all the economic voices are heard. Um, we close a slush fund uh, that uh, is operating at the Fed, and we accelerate the publication of the transcripts so that the public can see earlier and more closely the decision-making the Fed uh, is. So that clear mandate, holding the, the Fed accountable, giving them the independence to achieve it, I think is critical. But the point is you may have other ideas on what the role of the Fed should be. Let's have a contest of ideas. Let's have that national discussion on the role of the central bank because I think while people today will, will talk about what's happening in tapering, and, you know, I think it's encouraging that the Fed is only serving six desserts after dinner rather than seven. You know, that's a step forward slowly. But the truth is, beyond tapering and getting out of that this year, um, they still uh, have a near-zero interest rate policy that could continue seemingly till our children are grown. Uh, they also have over $2 trillion of excess bank reserves. That when this economy heats up and banks start lending, the Fed is going to have a real problem with inflation. Then they've got all the mortgage-backed securities that they purchase that they have to move back into the market as well. And so the focus on tapering is one of four big challenges. And this central bank, like others, is supremely confident it can do so without raising inflation. And historically, they're not so good at it. So here on the 100th birthday of the Fed, given where we are uh, at this juncture after the financial recovery or a crisis and now the recovery, tell me if there's ever been a better time to have this commission, to have this thoughtful, bipartisan, constructive discussion and why Congress shouldn't, both parties shouldn't be demanding that we actually begin this process. So I uh, would love to answer any questions on that or the Sound Dollar Act. I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to talk about some of these ideas. But the whole goal is to invite ideas through this commission on the role of the Fed. Thank you very much. Thank you, Congressman. Uh, should we also point out there's a law in economics called Say's Law, where supply creates its own demand. It's not spending that stimulates the economy. It's increased production. And if you don't have low marginal tax rates, you don't have a sound currency, uh, you don't have people that are saving and investing, that harms the economy. And the Federal Reserve, by paying basically zero on savings, is really uh, undermining economic growth in the long run. Uh, and that's, that's a very serious problem. And the fact that uh, it's not being discussed is, is disappointing. Uh, our next speaker is John Allison, uh, president and CEO of the Cato Institute and former chairman and CEO of BB&T uh, Bank. Uh, as a CEO of BB&T, uh, their assets grew from $4.5 uh, billion to $152 billion uh, between 1989 and 2008. So we hope he's going to do that at Cato, too. Uh, <laughs> he was recognized uh, by the Harvard Business Review as one of the top 100 uh, most successful CEOs in the world over the last decade. So we're very honored to have him at, at Cato. Uh, he's also the uh, author of a bestseller. Uh, it's been on the New York Times, uh, the Wall Street Journal, uh, of the financial crisis and the market, uh, free market cure, uh, which is a highly recommended uh, book to find out what went on uh, with this financial crisis and get an insider's view on, on this. Uh, 
He's the former distinguished professor of practice at Wake Forest University School of Business. He serves on the Board of Visitors at the business schools at Wake Forest, Duke, and his uh, alma mater, uh, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, he was a Phi Beta a graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and that's where his heart is. Uh, he likes basketball there, too. Uh, and he received his master's degree in management from Duke University uh, and is also a graduate of the Stonier Graduate School of Banking. So it's a pleasure to have John with us today. Thanks, Jim, and thanks, uh, Representative Brady, for being uh, willing to be here today and talk about this issue. As Jim said, my background is really in the banking business, so I got the interesting opportunity of kind of semi-working for the Fed for 40 years, a very interesting experience. And I have come to the conclusion, and I feel very strongly about this, that the Fed is one of the primary causes of excess volatility in our economy and that it's played a major role in reducing the potential economic growth rate. I think they've been a very negative force in, in our economic system, even though that's not the consensus. Uh, they will, by, on their own, admit they were the primary cause of the Great Depression, and they will admit that in the 1970s, the inflation they caused led to the massive uh, rise in interest rates in the early 1980s and, and the economic correction. So they'll admit about 40, 50 years after they make a mistake, they get around to admitting they made one. Uh, there's been a great myth created in the popular press by status that the recent financial crisis was caused by the deregulation of the banking industry and greed on Wall Street. Well, the banking industry was not deregulated under George Bush. We had three major new laws, the Patriot Act, the Privacy Act, Sarbanes-Oxley. There was a massive increase in regulation under the Bush administration. We were misregulated, not deregulated. The second thing, in my 40-year career, there's always been a maximum amount of greed on Wall Street. There's never been any room for any more greed. The idea that we had suddenly had a spike in greed is not, somebody just made that up. Um, the financial crisis, in fact, was primarily caused by government policy. We don't live in a free market in the United States. We live in what's called a mixed economy. Um, and if you look at that mix, it varies a lot. Technology went very well through the economic crisis, is doing well today, and it's almost unregulated. Financial services is the most regulated industry in the world, and it was, was before the financial crisis. It's not surprising the most regulated industry is where we've had our biggest problems. The two primary government culprits are the Federal Reserve, and I'm going to talk about them in a minute, and government housing policy, specifically Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, these giant government-sponsored enterprises that would have never existed in the free market, and when they failed, owed $5 trillion and had $2 trillion in subprime mortgages. Let's talk about the Fed because it really is fundamentally responsible for the recent financial crisis. Something that most people don't get, when the Fed was created and as it, as it evolved, fundamentally the monetary system in the United States was nationalized. There's no private monetary system in the United States. The Federal Reserve owns a monetary system. If you're having problems in the monetary system, by definition, they're caused by government policy. If interstate highway bridges were falling down, people would say, hey, the government owns the highway bridges. They're falling down. It's the government's fault. The government owns a monetary system in the United States. There's no private monetary system. The government controls it. One of the roles the Fed assumed for itself was reducing volatility in the economy. Now, here's the interesting fact. In the short term, the Fed does reduce volatility, but they create bigger problems in the long term. In a free market, markets are constantly correcting. Businesses are being created, and old businesses are failing. And the failure process is as important as a creation process, because when a business fails, its resources are reallocated to do something more productive. We quit making buggy whips. 
If you stop the short-term corre correction process, which the Fed constantly tries to do, all you do is push problems into the future. It's like not disciplining a 13-year-old. You're going to be unhappy when they get to be 16-year-olds. And that's what the Fed does. It stops the discipline from happening. In this specific crisis, in the early 2000s, Alan Greenspan had been the longtime head of the Federal Reserve, and he was a maestro. We were having an economic <laughs> correction that we needed, the so-called dot-bomb-com uh, bubble. Greenspan didn't want to go out on a bad note, so he did a very interesting thing. He created what's called negative real interest rates. That meant you could borrow it less than the inflation rate, and you could borrow it much less than the appreciation rate in housing, which obviously spurred people to go buy houses. And it matters what the interest rate is, although technically the Fed doesn't control long-term rates, it practically impacts rates dramatically. And if the, if the interest rate is is 6% and you can afford maybe $2,000 a month, and I'm, uh, the numbers I'm not calculating, but maybe you can afford a $200,000 house. But if the interest rate's 4%, you can buy a $300,000 house, which incents you to buy larger houses, right? Very interesting thing to do. But then the Fed realized that was creating inflation. And on its way out, Greenspan and then Bernanke raised interest rates 425% in about a year and a half. That is the biggest percentage increase in interest rates and created something called negative, <clears throat> called inverted interest rates, where short-term rates were higher than long-term rates, which is a, markets never do that because if you're going to invest long, you want a higher interest rate. That's a killer for the banking business because banks borrow short and lend long. So what did banks do? At the time, the Fed was projecting good times forever. By the way, the Fed was projecting good times after the recession had already started. And, 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 and that was an interesting message to the industry. We had negative spreads. We were buying watermelons for $10 and selling them for 8 Not much fun. And, and what the industry did is went out the risk curve. So you see this exponential increase in high-risk loans. You can get higher interest rates on when you have inverted interest rates. By the way, there's almost 100% correlation between inverted interest rates and recession, which Bernanke denied <laughs> in this process and claimed we weren't going to create. He wasn't creating a recession. And if you argue that uh, inverted interest rates cause recessions, it was conscious decision by the Federal Reserve to invert the interest rate. Markets never do that. Um, in a more fundamental sense, where did the money come from from a bubble if the Fed didn't provide it? It had to provide it. So it is, in a certain sense, the fundamental cause of the bubble that led to the correction and the process we're suffering <coughs> from now. The Fed also has a very interesting problem that we need to investigate. It's got, it's, it's kind of a two-headed monster. It has a big regulatory arm that is not, not always in, harm with it, uh, in, in harmony with its, its monetary policy arm. And its regulatory arm can have a big effect on, on how uh, risk is taken in the system. Uh, for example, under George Bush, under a Republican, there was huge pressure on the Patriot Act. And a lot of resources got shifted out of credit risk management, what banks traditionally do, to trying to figure out what to do about the Patriot Act. That happened in my organization, where we hired hundreds of people to do the Patriot Act. By the way, the Patriot Act's a really bad law, just to tell you all that. Real, real, real invasion of your privacy, you ought to be worried about it, but that's a different issue. Any event, regulators impact the allocation of risk management resources pretty dramatically. And then during the financial crisis, you see what's called public choice theory and how regulators react and what impact it happened. I don't know if many people followed this, but during the middle of the financial crisis, Wachovia, a mid-sized institution in the southeast, failed, and they sold Wachovia, the Federal Reserve sold Wachovia to Citigroup. Now, anybody in the market knew that Citigroup was in worse shape than Wachovia. Why did they sell Wachovia to Citigroup? Because they were trying to bail out Citigroup. 
Why would they do that? Because Mr. Geithner, who was head of the Fed in New York, didn't want one of his companies to fail because that would be embarrassing. Why did they panic? Because they, they, were, they were regulating this industry and they had allowed these problems to happen. They wanted to do anything they could to uh, mitigate the short-term consequences, even if there were long-term consequences. And by the way, when organizations go bankrupt, they don't disappear. Probably everybody in here has flown around on American Airlines, and they were bankrupt up to a few weeks ago, and you didn't even know it. The, the idea that all the banks were going to disappear if we went into bankruptcy is just, just a myth. But if you're a regulator, it looks bad if your bank goes broke. So you got a huge motivation to take a lot of government regress and give it to the unhealthy institutions, which is exactly what happened in this process. Uh, today, the Fed's printing money willy-nilly, as, as Representative Brady just described. And at the same time, the regulatory arm, until very recently, has been tightening lending standards like crazy. Because if you're on the regulatory side, if banks get in trouble, you look bad, right? So what's the easiest way to keep banks from taking too much risk? Tighten the lending standards. The small business lending standards are tighter today than they've ever been in my 40-year career. And they're still tighter today. That's why small business creation is so, so slow, because venture capital lending is what banks do in the small business marketplace. And if you do it right, you can be very successful in it, but you can't do it now under the, res, uh, the Fed standards. And it's interesting, and whether this is conscious or not, what's that doing? We're driving financial resources to the government. If you look at a bank's balance sheet, what's happened? They have a whole lot more government bonds and a whole lot less private loans than they had when this stuff started. That's good from the Fed's perspective, because what does that do? Drives down interest rates for the federal government. That is not necessarily good from an economic perspective, because when the government consumes resources, it is less productive than private businesses for consuming resources. One main reason we're having such slow growth is this massive reallocation to the federal government, driven a lot by Fed policy. And by the way, the way you make that work is you set risk capital standards, right? You raise the bank's capital standards, and then you say we're going to weight it by risk. And by the way, lending money to the federal government has no risk. So you can lend all the money you want to the federal government without having to have any capital. By the way, they did that in Europe where you could lend all the money you wanted to to, to, to Greece without having any capital. It didn't work out too well. Uh, but uh, before, before the financial crisis, you had to have half as much The Federal Reserve demanded this. You had half to half as much capital for a subprime mortgage loan as you did to a loan to Exxon based on their capital standards. So they were driving resources into the subprime market by, by capital allocation. Now they're driving it to the government. Um, another interesting thing is, I don't know how many people in here have studied uh, economics, but in 1913, Ludwig von Mises wrote a book about uh, pricing and showed that price fixing never works. And it's a fundamental problem in socialist communist economies because you can't allocate resources properly. Markets can take a lot of information, integrate it together, and give you the right price. No set of government bureaucrats anywhere can set a right price. I have talked to multiple members of the Federal Reserve Board over the years and asked them if they thought price fixing was a good thing. If the government could put together a commission and, and, and come up with the right price for an automobile. And they all said, oh, that's crazy. You couldn't integrate all those decisions. And yet these same people are setting the price for money, which is the most complicated price in the global economy and the most important price. So these people admit that price fishing doesn't work, and yet they're engaged in it. And then what they're doing today, and I think this is an ethical issue, they have consciously cho chosen to hold the price of borrowing below the market rate. That's what they brag about that, right? They're holding interest rates low. 
That is a massive redistribution of wealth on a grand scale from middle-income people to rich people because lower interest rates raises the PE in the stock market significantly, and people that are, wealthy people that have stocks have been huge winners. Who loses? Seniors that worked all their life to save a little bit of money, put it in the bank they wanted to live on, and they're getting nothing on their savings. Uh, that is an unbelievable redistribution of wealth. I personally think it's unethical, and it's particularly unethical for a group of people that aren't even elected to make that kind of choice. And that alone says, wait, we need to think about whether we want to have the Fed or not. There's a real problem in why I think this commission is so essential. I'll use an analogy that some of you might not like, but one of the problems with this whole issue of climate change, global warming, global cooling, whatever it is this week, <laughs> uh, is that 90% of the climatologists get money from the federal government. And if they say there's no problem, they don't get any money, right? The same thing's true with the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve owns the monetary uh, uh, system in the sense that 90% that of the people that get monetary economics degree either work for the Fed, do research for the Fed, used to work for the Fed. Who's going to criticize the guy that pays your pay? They control the debate on this issue in an unbelievable way. And by the way, they try to hire people like they try to hire people from us because they don't want people that disagree with them out there. They want them working for us. So they own the debate on this issue. So we need an objective analysis. Let's look at the facts. Let's look and see what the Fed has really done. Has it really promoted wealth and well-being? I think it's the enemy of wealth and well-being, and, and that there are lots of better solutions, market-based solutions. Why? Markets work in every other area. Why would they not work in terms of interest rates? Why do we have this group of elitists who are, by the way, basically political animals, so they don't get on the board in the first place? I know in my 40-year career, we've never had the smartest and best bankers in the Federal Reserve Board because they're not political people. So we need market-based decision-making. I think that always produces better outcomes. Thank you. Thank you, John, for that excellent presentation. Um, Cato's been holding an annual monetary conference for 32 years. I started doing it when I was 15, I think. Uh, but uh, we have a journal coming out uh, from last year's monetary conference at which Representative Brady was there and also Representative Henserling, uh, along with some Fed officials like uh, Plosser uh, from the Philadelphia Fed. But the title of the, uh, the journal will be uh, Is the Fed a Good Idea? Uh, now, it was the Fed a good idea, but we're looking forward, uh, and we need to look at these alternatives. And Cato's uh, been in the forefront of this for many years, looking at alternatives to the uh, current system uh, with leading uh, scholars. And, and, and we've had Bernanke and Greenspan and Fed people there, so we try to get people together to have a debate. But uh, we're not the Congress, and Congress has a responsibility uh, for sound money, so it's about time that uh, we had uh, something like this commission. Uh, our final speaker today is uh, Norbert Michel. Uh, he's a research fellow in financial regulation at the Heritage Foundation since September 2013, I guess. And uh, prior to joining Heritage, he was an associate professor of finance and economics at Nichols State University in uh, New Orleans. Uh, and uh, he awarded, he was awarded the uh, uh, Andy Bullinger endowed professorship in the summer of 2012 uh, for his uh, excellent research and uh, teaching. He holds a degree in finance and economics from Loyola University in uh, New Orleans and a PhD degree in financial economics from the University of New Orleans. Uh, 
And uh, prior to doing all this, he actually has experience uh, running his family's small business, uh, which not too many economists, uh, especially at the Fed, would have uh, for four years before uh, entering graduate school. And he was, uh, before that, he was a policy anal analyst at the Heritage, uh, Heritage Center for Data Analysis from 2002 to 2005. Uh, and he was also an adjunct professor of economics at George Mason University in the fall of 2004. So it's a pleasure to have Norbert with us today. To just. Thank you, Jim. Uh, I just want to take a, a second to, to compliment Congressman Brady on the work that he's doing for monetary policy. This is important economically. It's important for me. It makes my job a lot easier, of course. Um, but this is not typically an issue that is very rewarding in elections. Uh, monetary policy doesn't seem to excite many voters for some reason. I don't know. Um, but so I'm, I'm very glad and very excited to be here today. Thanks, Jim. Uh, and, and to be working at Heritage on this issue at this time because of legislation like this. this it really does help. I'm joking around, but it really does make my job easier. Um, so uh, Jim asked me to speak briefly about the sort of expansion of Federal Reserve power and to sort of focus on more recent expansions of Fed power. So that's what I'm going to do. And when he first asked me about this topic, I thought, well, that's easy. I'll just focus on the expansions that, are, that we see from Dodd-Frank. Then he told me I only had 10 minutes. Uh, that, that changes things. It turns out when you do a, a word search for Federal Reserve and Dodd-Frank, you get over 200 matches. Some of those are, to be fair, some of those are just sort of definitional things and minor references, but they're far outweighed by substantive changes. Uh, so there's no way that it could convey all of those changes that have taken place under Dodd-Frank uh, in, in a short amount of time or even a really a short amount, a short paper. Um, so there are a lot of things that I'm not going to mention. Uh, for instance, I'm not going to mention things like the Fed's now responsible for rules to comply with real estate appraisals, to develop alternative credit ratings, to uh, develop procedures for security holding company registrations, SNL holding companies, uh, escrow accounts, to regulate escrow accounts, to implement living wills for systemically important financial institutions, to implement stress tests, for bank holding companies with 50 billion or more in assets, all banks with more than 10 billion in assets, even non-bank financial institutions in some cases. I'm not gonna talk about any of those things. I'm not even gonna mention them. Uh, or the fact that the Fed's now working on more than 50 rules to implement Dodd-Frank. So none of those things are, are gonna be the focus of my, of my little talk here. Um, but, but I am going to get to those things, uh, a couple of the more important ones. And I just wanna sort of work my way up to the present really quickly, because I really do think it's important to give a little bit of context to what's happened. Because in a, to a large extent, what we've seen with the Fed in terms of their expansion of power is mission creep. And we see that in a lot of bureaucracies. And this is just another one. It's another large bureaucracy. Um, so if we go all the way back to the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 for just a second, what we learn is that by today's standards, what that act created was a very sleepy little institution. Um, it, it, it sounds a little bit funny, but what we had really was a decentralized central bank. And when you look at what happened, we had, uh, or the act itself actually, had created a, a system which was really just meant to, to stem the seasonal fluctuations in reserve balances in the context of a gold standard. It's absolutely nothing like what we have today, nothing. 
and if you go to the congressional record, it actually is kind of strange because it shows that some people in Congress and the majority actually, uh, did that go out? Oh, okay. I'm, I'm hearing things. Um, I'm sorry. So some people in the majority party actually denied that they had created a central bank altogether. Um, they were actually scared to death of one. And they honestly believed that what they had created was a system of autonomous regional reserve banks. Uh, it makes sense because they sort of nationalized the clearinghouse system. But at any rate, uh, other members in Congress understood exactly what had happened. Frank Mandel, representative from Wyoming, for instance, I'll read this very fast. Uh, he presciently warned that the Federal Reserve Board under this bill is an organization of vastly wider power, authority, and control over currency and banks than the reserve associations contemplated by the National Monetary Commission. It's the 1907 Commission. It is of a character which, in practical operation, would tend to increase and centralize in your frantic efforts to escape the bogeyman of a central bank, you have come perilously near establishing the most powerful banking institution in the world. And we kind of know how that turned out now. Uh, but it didn't take very long for the Fed to start evolving. And it did so on its own, sort of through the power of the board. And it did so legislatively. Just a couple of examples. Uh, one, Section 14 of the original act gave the district reserve banks, the district reserve banks, the authority to buy federal government securities only within certain limits. So it could do so, for example, when their reserves were not being used to provide liquidity to banks, which is what they were supposed to be doing. The framers of the act were actually quite scared of having created an institution that looked as though it was lending to the crown. So there simply was no authority for the board to carry out economy-wide purchases of U.S. federal government securities, uh, or even to direct the district banks to do so. But the board initiated that authority on its own, without any legislation. Uh, by 1927, the board had come up with four distinct justifications for open market, discretionary open market operations. Uh, so it just sort of screams of a policy in search of an explanation. Of course, their expansion was also done, accomplished through legislative acts. And some of the best examples of that are during the Great Depression. One, just one of those examples from that era would be the Banking Act of 1935. This is the act that gave us the structure that we still have today, among other things. Uh, it replaced the old Federal Reserve Board with the new Board of Governors. It gave that board the authority to change reserve requirements for member banks, for the actual banking institutions that were out there that were members, not just the district banks, but the member banks. And of course, it gave the balance of power to the board. It put all member or put a majority of the members on the Open Market Committee, and it ensured that not only would it centralize the power of the Fed itself, but the discretionary monetary policy that the Federal Open Market Committee took on would be essentially run by the Board of Governors in Washington. Uh, and as strange as this may seem, there were two senators, one from North Dakota, one from Idaho, who tried to have a price rule written into that act. Obviously, they lost. Um, but there was real opposition to the discretionary open market operations that were given to the board. Carter Glass, who you'll probably recognize as Glass de Gaulle, uh, one half rather of Glass de Gaulle, uh, was an original sponsor of the 1913 Act. And during this debate, again, I'll read really fast, uh, he complained that it is now presumed to make the open market committee the supreme power in the determination of the credits of the country. No such thing was intended by the original Federal Reserve Act, and no such thing should ever be done. 
because the board does not have a dollar of pecuniary interest in the reserve funds of the deposits of the Federal Reserve Banks or of member banks. I don't know where he got those crazy ideas from. Um, so we have one major shift in that was legislatively brought upon uh, on us, that was brought on us, and one major shift that was just sort of initiated by the board without any legislation at all. Uh, and those are just two examples, both of which took place within 20 years of the creation of the Fed. It vastly changed the Fed and expanded its power. So as fashionable as it might be to talk about some of the recent changes as vast expansions of power, and I think that's a valid argument to make, um, I'm not sure that any of the recent changes are more vast necessarily than giving yourself the authority to create open market, op to take on discretionary open market operations, or to completely obliterate the intended autonomy of the Federal District Reserve Banks. They completely changed the system. So I think we need to keep that context in mind when we talk about the recent changes, uh, and that's why I wanted to sort of start with that. So I still have a couple minutes, right? Um, so keeping that context in mind, going all the way up to Dodd-Frank, for some superficial proof that Dodd-Frank expanded the Fed's power, we can just turn to Janet Yellen, who has already pledged to use the Fed's expanded authority to level the playing field between large banks and small to make it more difficult for the large banks to compete. I'm not sure what section of Dodd-Frank that is, uh, but, but that's what she said nonetheless. We also have the GAO report that says that the Fed dedicated almost 1,000 employees to implementing Dodd-Frank more than any of the other regulatory agencies involved in doing so. So there's that. Um, and I'll just bring those things up really quickly because there are critics who point to Dodd-Frank as actually limiting the Fed's power and authority, which seems a little bit strange. But one of the things that they'll use to do that is to say that the, the Dodd-Frank legislation limits their emergency lending authority. For instance, uh, under Dodd-Frank, the Fed can no longer provide emergency lending to any one individual partnership or corporation. It can only provide emergency lending through programs that have broad-based eligibility, and it can only provide those programs with the approval of the Treasury. That's almost like a, a, a joke that's written by a comedian right there, because it, to, to say that that provision, which is in Dodd-Frank, limits the Fed's authority, completely ignores the history of the Federal Reserve. It, it absolutely ignores the recent history as well as the, the complete full 100-year history. Um, in addition to that, it ignores the fact that the Fed is now in the formal legal position of being the country's systemic risk regulator, and it now has more reach into the non-banking sector than it has ever had before. All the specific changes that are in Dodd-Frank, along with its new nebulous mandate to regulate financial stability, make it very clear that the Fed will be enlarging its footprint in the economy, not shrinking it. Uh, just a couple of the specifics. One of the worst, I think, is that the Fed chair now sits on the newly created Financial Stability Oversight Council, some sort of Orwellian beast, I think, um, just in case you wonder what I'm thinking. But, um, so this is this a collaborative body with the Fed chair and the secretary of the treasury, two positions which have a 100-year history of collaborating with each other to coordinate monetary fiscal policy. They're actually quite good at that. Uh, and now they're in charge of systemic risk for the entire economy. It's not an expansion at all. Um, the council is formally charged with designating the companies that oppose a threat to the financial stability of the U.S. and then designating them for those heightened regulations. This is the, the term SIFI, 
systemically important financial institution. These are these companies. Even though that term is actually not a legal term in Dodd-Frank, but that's a digression. Um, but so for any, at any rate, the Fed gets to come up with these heightened regulations. That's an expansion. And it is true that the Fed already regulated financial holding companies. That is true. But Dodd-Frank specifically extended the Federal Reserve's reach into the financial holding company's subsidiaries. That's new. That's section 604. I do know that section. Um, indirectly, and this is my last point, indirectly Dodd-Frank expanded the Fed's authority through section 120. Because they're on the, federal, uh, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, the Fed is now intimately involved in requiring new regulations for any financial company that it determines poses a threat to, and I quote, financial markets of the United States or low-income, minority, or underserved communities. That's not a provision of Dodd-Frank that many people have spoken about. I haven't been able to find very much that's been in print on it. That's more expansive than any of the other stuff. That's basically anybody. So, in the context of this bill, I think it is pretty clear that the Fed Board of Governors is now in the middle of regulating more companies than it has ever before, certainly before the crisis, and they can now, virtu they can now provide emergency assistance to virtually any company they want, and to hedge their bet, all they have to do is provide it to a group of companies, and it's not like they haven't done that before. Thank you.